Well, if you'll turn with me to the book of Esther, we are in Esther, we'll be in Esther this week and next, and then the following week starts Advent. So we will be finishing Esther um, this next week, I hope prayerfully, that's what will happen. Um, and, but we are in Esther 6 and 7 today. Um, and before we get into it, I know I just prayed, but I want to pray specifically for um, His Word to go forth um, for us today. So, Father, we do, as we, come, as we come before Your Holy Word, Lord, we need Your Spirit to be at work in us, to open our eyes, to unite our hearts, uh, to make Your Word and Your truth clear to us. As we read this glorious story uh, of truth, of, of your work amongst your people, and how you continue to do that. So help us to see that. Help us to rest in you. Strengthen me uh, today, and then strengthen all of us to hear. And Lord, would you, by your Spirit, change us to walk more and more in line with your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Saturday uh, looked a little bit different than yesterday. And I was able to take advantage of that warmer weather, and I was able to go for a nice bike ride. But if you remember, and there's probably not much reason for you to do so, it was one of the windier days we've had around here. And so the, the stretch as I went south was brutal, uh, to say the least. Uh, very, very strong headwinds. But when I turned around and came back north to head home, what a joy. What a, I mean, just to clip along with very little effort and yet to be moving right along. And it was, it was wonderful. But then as I'm on the bike path and I get to, uh, I'm about to Pershing Avenue and it goes, the bike path goes under that Pershing Avenue bridge. All of a sudden, as I went under it, I was caught completely off guard. Completely off guard. The, the wind was apparently swirling uh, under that underpass and it turned from a tailwind to a crosswind to a headwind to another crosswind, and my bike's jiggling. Thankfully, I was holding on well enough at that point in time, and I got through okay, but it was impossible to see the wind change. Absolutely impossible in that situation to see it coming. Now, I know that's, that's the way it is with wind. You, you can't see it. You can only see the effects of it, and when you're coming up to something that is just concrete, you you can't tell when concrete's blowing, you know, because it's not blowing, so you couldn't see it. There was no chance of me seeing it com- coming, and, and it's interesting. While I was studying this week, I learned a word that actually helps speak to what I experienced, okay? And it's the word peripatea, okay? Now, for everyone who was like me earlier in this week and has no idea what that word means, I'm going to give you the definition, It is a sudden or unexpected reversal of circumstances or situations, especially in a literary work. Now, granted, I wasn't in a literary work there. I wasn't reading while I was writing or anything like that. But the reversal of circumstances was quite sudden and unexpected for me. I was just expecting that tailwind the whole way home. But we do have a literary work this morning, and one that certainly has peripatia in it has that sudden reversal. You know, when we, laugh, uh, when we last left Esther, she'd invited the king and Haman to a second banquet in as many days. She'd put off telling the king why she had risked her life coming into his presence uninvited and, and had said she would tell at this coming feast. And also we saw that Haman had very clear plans, exciting ones for him, to go tell the king, hey, I need you to hang Mordecai. 
I need you to get rid of him on the gallows. All of this on the heels of an edict um, to commit genocide against the Jewish people throughout Persia. And today, we have a massive turn. We may expect some good news as we read this. I mean, we just kind of know, and, you know, if we've read it before, we, of course, expect good news. But, you know, as you think through the story, we expect some, but this is different. And this good news doesn't happen, this, 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 it doesn't happen in any extraordinary way. It's actually quite ordinary what we read in these next chapters, but it changes the trajectory of the story completely. There's a chance happening of insomnia, and Esther will finally identify herself with the people of the covenant. And how it all works out is virtually impossible not to see the working of God in the midst of it, God's providence in the ordinary and daily circumstances of life. And my hope and, and my prayer this morning is that as, as we look at this and we see more of who God is, that it will engender in each of us confidence and faith in God that, that He is at work in everyday life. He's, in, he's at work in the lives every day of His covenant children in the ordinary, in the everyday happenings of our lives. So let's look at verse 1, just the first part of verse 1 here in chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, here are actually some of the most significant words in the entire book. On that night, the king could not sleep. This is a major turning point. This is, is at least, if not of greater significance in many ways, than Esther saying, I'm gonna, I, I will, and if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to identify with the people of God. And the amazing thing with these words is it's one of the most ordinary things you can imagine. This is so common. There, there's nothing special about this. The king cannot sleep. Maybe he, had, maybe he had bad lamb for dinner and had a little indigestion. We have no idea why he couldn't sleep. The text doesn't tell us. All it tells us is the king could not sleep. This is merely an ordinary event, as ordinary as anything you can imagine. And yet, it is magnificently used in the providence of God. Because not only could he not sleep, but the attempted remedy to deal with his sleeplessness is also quite important. Continue looking at the, the rest of that verse and, and moving on. He says, And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So one question is, why this book? Why does he say, bring the book of memorable deeds and read to me? Well, it's not necessarily boring reading. This isn't like reading through the phone book or something like that. It was filled with the exploits, the memorable deeds of, of Persia and, of course, of the king. So he's He's feeling a little good about himself as he hears about these memorable deeds. It's all about his greatness. But yet, this was chosen as the remedy for his sleeplessness. And it just so happens, it's amazing, it just so happens that some of what is read dealt with Mordecai foiling the plot to assassinate the king. And yet, in that process, he was never honored for it. This must be immense happenstance that happened here. 
And these type of things continue to happen and happen and happen again at very, what, as we look back on it, very critical times. So then let's read on, verse 4. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? Okay, so by by the king asking who was in the court at this point in time, one, we see some of his leadership style. This king cannot make a decision by himself at all. Um, He has never once made a decision by himself. He has to ask ask others. And it just so happened that Haman is in the court, this eager beaver. I don't know what time it is. Maybe it's really, really, really early in the morning. But he is in the court waiting to ask for Mordecai to be impaled. Now, I I did do a little bit more reading on the gallows. And I kind of have to correct something of what I said last week. Last week I said it was a super high 75-foot gallows that a stake would we'd be suspended from. That's probably not accurate. It was more like it was actually a 75-foot-high stake of some sort with a point on the top, and they would toss the person onto it. Okay, so either way, they're both effective, both gruesome, but I just wanted to be a little bit more accurate in what Persian gallows were like. And so it was a kind of a nasty display, but this is what Haman is, is eager to ask the king to do. And then the king, as he comes in, asks this hugely open question, at least to Haman. It's a hugely open question, though the king has a very specific recipient in mind, but he doesn't say who. And Haman, of course, because we understand Haman has had barely fit through the palace doors, he's going to assume that it's referring to him, which really isn't necessarily unwarranted. He is the second in command of all of Persia. He's, he's been a, a, you know, a, a great confidant of the king. So continue to look at the, at the text. It says, and Haman said to himself, here we get some of Haman, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, um, for the man whom the king delights to honor let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose had a, a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, though Haman's thought that the king was speaking of him is not out of the realm of possibility, it really does show the, the gargantuan size of Haman's ego at this point in time. This is a window into Haman's soul. Everything in Haman's world revolves around Haman, plain and simple. He is the center. Uh, it, is, it is a Hamanocentric universe at that point in time. It's, everything is around him. And so because of that, He piles on honor upon honor upon honor for this person. And one commentator wrote this, said, This is audacious indeed. If the king realized Haman intended this for himself, it would border on treason. To wear the king's robe, ride the king's horse, and be led in honor publicly around the streets comes very close to claiming the throne. When Saul's son Jonathan gave David the royal robe, tunic, sword, and belt, He acknowledged that David was God's anointed king to succeed his father. 
Haman comes as close as he dares to claiming equality with the most powerful man on earth. He considers equality with the king as something to be grasped at. Such is his proud heart. Now, I just have to say at this moment, what a contrast from what we hear in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Then verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Haman, in some ways, serves as a foil to our Savior. Haman wanted to grasp at power and glory. Our Lord didn't count it as something to be grasped at and humbled himself and took the form of a servant. But then in the story, we come to the wrinkle that Haman really wasn't expecting. Verse 10 Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That is complete shock, complete shock to Haman. This, this may be one of the more shockingly humorous and beautiful sections in all of Scripture. Uh, th- th- this is an amazing turn of events, and, and there's no way Haman can refuse or leave anything out because his king has told him exactly what to do. Hurry! Don't leave anything out! Do it all! And I think, it's, I think it's utterly appropriate at this point in time for each of us to simply smile from ear to ear as we picture Haman's face as he has to do this as he's putting this royal robe on Mordecai the Jew. As we picture him parading Mordecai around the city square proclaiming his honor. This is a made-for-TV moment. If, if, If Instagram or Twitter were around at that point in time or TikTok, this would be viral in moments, what happened. One commentator appropriately labeled this as Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's exactly what it is for Haman. He goes in thinking he's going to ask the king, can you hang Mordecai? And he ends up proclaiming in the square of the city, this is the man, Mordecai, whom the king delights to honor. This is what happens to you. But you know, not only is Haman a foil for Christ, But there is a bit of a picture from Mordecai of Jesus. You know, Mordecai is for all intents and purposes an ordinary guy, and yet here he's clothed with royalty. He's honored as the one in whom the king is pleased. Jesus, in so many ways, was just an ordinary guy from Nazareth, but he was full of, he was clothed with glory and majesty, and the king of all himself declared, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. The one who didn't grasp for equality is clothed in glory and majesty. Well, then we get to verse 12 of chapter 6. 
Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to them. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now these verses continue to, one, they, they continue to show a contrast. Mordecai went back to the, king, to the city gate, seemingly unaffected by this whole thing. He goes back to work. Haman is crushed. Haman is covering his head. He's in mourning. He can't even look at anyone. He can't let anyone see his face as he hurries home. And there he talks with his wife and his friends, and they share information that surely would have been helpful merely 24 hours earlier. Suddenly, his wife and friends are theologians. They've got this theological insight that he would have really loved if they'd had it a little bit earlier. And they say, hey, oh, and by the way, if he's a Jew, you're toast. You're not going to prevail against him. It's not going to happen. That's not really that, that encouragement, that lifting up you would want from your friends and your wife when you go home after a devastating day. But if you think about it, too, those words that are said to him, they could have and they should have been a prompt for Haman to turn. Uh, One talked about a kind of a Psalm 2 moment, kiss the son lest he be angry, bow before him, bow and, and turn away from your wicked ways, but he doesn't. His pride would lead to his downfall. His folly would be utterly exposed. And we get to verse 14 and it says, while they were yet talking with him, there's no time here, The king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. He had no time to process what they spoke. It was banquet time, and you don't make the king and queen wait. Yet, I would imagine with his, you know, gargantuan ego, he's going, whew, at least I get to go hang out with the king and queen. I'm fine. I'm okay. Everything's going to be good. I'm the only one going to this banquet. But you know what? This is another picture of reversal. We talk about reversal in in this and sudden unexpected change of events. Think about this. One, One commentator said this, in the opening sections of the book, it was Esther, it was Hadassah, the pretty Jewish peasant girl who had been swept away by palace eunuchs to an uncertain fate. It was Esther whose life had been disrupted by plans not her own, but now, as Haman and Ahasuerus sit down at Esther's third banquet, Queen Esther presides, and Haman is the one who is swept along, out of control and overtaken by circumstances that were never part of his plan. We are being reminded yet again that our ways are not God's ways, nor are our thoughts God's thoughts. It is some irony there, isn't it? Esther started off. She's, she's pulled away by the eunuchs. He's now pulled away by the eunuchs. He's out of control. Esther was out of control. Well, let's move into chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, 
And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I, I, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? There's so much in these few verses. This is Esther's second feast in as many days. It's her third feast overall, if you count her, the, the first feast when she became queen. There was a feast for the whole city. And if you haven't noticed, feasting is rather important. We're going to see that again more and more. Feasting is rather important in this book. But in this, in this short section, the king again promises to grant Esther her request. Wonderful reassurance to her, a huge relief that his favor, his disposition didn't wane overnight. His, his sleeplessness didn't make him a grump towards her. He, he was still, I'm going to, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. You, you have it. Well, then Esther skillfully presents her request, doesn't she? She makes her life being spared her wish and her request the lives of her people. She very clearly identifies at this point as non-Persian. The, the king is probably getting that, like, okay, she's, she's not Persian, maybe think, fine, whatever. She states that her people have been sold, referring to the 10,000 talents, most likely, that, that Haman said, I'll pay into the king's treasury if I can just wipe them all out. I'll give you 10,000 talents. And then she quotes the edict word for word, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The same three words that are in the edict that, that went out that made it very clear what the people were to do with the Jewish people. And by this point, I can only imagine Haman. He has either spit out his wine, he's choked on something, or he's utterly paled. Every bit of color has left his face, or all three of those things have happened at once. Because at that time, it became very clear that the queen herself was Jewish. And she's so skilled in how she puts this to the king. She's like, but you know what? If, if we'd only been sold as slaves, I would have never brought it up. That would have been, that would have been, we would have dealt with that. But this isn't just slavery. This is a holocaust. And she makes it very very clear. And the king asked who would do this, and you almost picture Nathan with David, because in many ways, Esther could have said, well, you are. You're the man because it's your edict. But she doesn't. The king inquires who would do this, and, and Esther's response is clear and forthright. And Esther said, a foe and enemy this wicked Haman, and you can just kind of see her finger point straight at him. And I think this is maybe like the understatement of Scripture. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. <laughs> yes, absolutely he was. At this point, I'm sure every bit of blood is gone from Haman. It has all rushed from his face. The queen's not pointing to him in honor in any way, but in condemnation. And the king's response is fury. 
It's wrath. And he cannot even sit there. He, he gets up. He is so frustrated. Now, I think that frustration could be for a lot of reasons. This is a little complex. A small and underlying reason for this frustration, for getting up and walking away, is he might just be shocked that Esther's Jewish, that his queen has for five years not told him of her ethnicity. He could be sad and upset over that. I, I, I kind of, I, I don't really think that's the main issue here. <laughs> I think the main issue is he's ticked at Haman, but he's also in a bit of a quandary. Because remember, I, I told you before, in Middle Eastern culture, you don't lose face. His wife, his queen, just said, we have been sold implicitly by your edict to be wiped out. He likes his queen. But somehow he's got to deal with an edict he's just put out not too long ago. So how could he punish Haman when it was an edict that his signet ring sealed. But at the same time, he knew, I've got to punish Haman. I've got to do something to this guy. He wants to kill my queen. So we read verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Hey, moreover, there's gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. And, and uh, they're standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. Now the king's in this quandary. He leaves in a quandary, he's upset, he comes back, and there's a really convenient out for him, isn't there? One, Haman broke a a, a very key rule for Persia. No man was allowed to be alone with a woman from the king's harem except for the king, or the trusted eunuchs, I'm sure, were not allowed to be alone, especially with the queen. But could Haman have just said, okay, I'm out of here, and run out of the... No. Could he have gone after the king and tried to reason with him? (laughs) No, that would not have worked either. So he stayed. He stayed and he begged. He fell before this Jewish woman. He fell... Do you get that? He fell before a Jewish woman begging for his life. And as he's doing that, the king returns, and that whole scene doesn't look good for Haman. Now, it is almost certain, I don't think there's really any way that Ahasuerus really believed that Haman was about to assault Esther under his nose. But it sure gave a good ending for it. Because he had a very clear path. He's like, would you... Would you even do this to, my, to the queen? You're done. You're done. It's, it's a great way to deal with it. And then to have Harbona, you can just imagine Haman suggesting under his breath as, this, as his face is covered when Harbona's like, oh, and by the way, 
this guy actually made 75-foot gallows. It's hanging at his house. Why don't we just use that? <laughs> you can just think Haman's going, oh, could this get any worse? Could it get any worse? Just think of the irony of this section, of this story. Consider how the entire conflict between Haman and the Jewish people begins, one commentator wrote. When Mordecai the Jew dishonors Haman the Agagite by refusing to fall before him. It starts because Haman will not bow, or Mordecai will not bow before Haman. And then in, his, in this final scene, Haman falls before a Jew and a Jewish woman at that whom he is unknowingly condemned to death to plead with her for his life. On the couch of this Jewish queen, he falls all the way from his exalted position, a second over the empire, to an ignominious death as a traitor. The enemy of the Jews is executed for being an enemy of the king. This sudden reversal of expected outcomes gives Haman's story a tragic irony. All of a person's best laid plans can in an instant be turned to produce the opposite of the intent. It is especially ironic when that person has all the power of a great empire behind him and when his downfall begins with something as insignificant as someone's night of insomnia. God used the fact that Ahasuerus could not fall asleep and the story turned so unexpectedly. This whole story is about reversals. And, and really, in, in, in a number of ways, that is the way of our God. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The humble will be exalted, and the proud will be humbled. And it's about Him working through the ordinary and the seemingly insignificant. Again, read, God providentially directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill the promises of His covenant. What a great God we serve. Any deity worth His salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that He can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives, through millennia of time, to accomplish His eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night, because a man would not bow to a superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. God used an ordinary baby born in Bethlehem. Not really an ordinary baby, but an ordinary birth in Bethlehem a man that no one would have given a second look towards. But it was actually God himself taking on flesh in order to save us from our sin. You know, all of us, we're a people naturally condemned. We are children of wrath. We, we are objects of wrath by nature, the king of the universe. But our Lord himself he didn't throw us to the gallows. He went to it for us. He took the wrath 
of the king of the universe against our sin upon himself so that there's none left for his children. The enemies of God thought they had won at the cross. And three days later, there was a reversal, wasn't there? He rose from the dead in victory. He had hung on the cross because he loved us. A great love with which he loved us. And folks, it's that God who is at work in our lives in the day-to-day through the ordinary, mundane aspects of our life. As we faithfully live a quiet life following after our Savior. We can trust that our God is, is at work in our lives, not just dealing with our sin. He's, he's in many ways completely dealt with it. Yes, we deal with seeking to kill it and no longer sin as much as we do. But the judgment against that sin has been dealt with, but He is at work continually in the everyday and the ordinary in our lives. And you can see it so clearly in the story of Esther. We look back and we think, oh, what an amazing story. What, what, what miraculous. No, it was a king who couldn't sleep. It was a woman who stood up and did what she had to do for her people. So many really ordinary human events. And God used them for his glory. So don't mistake your ordinary life for something that God cannot use. God is at work in each of us in our day-to-day as we do the dishes and the laundry and go to work and do stuff with friends and neighbors. Let him be at work and look to him in the midst of all of it. Trust him that he is at work. Pray that he will use you. Pray that you will see him at work in your everyday lives that you can sing and you can, you can say along with what we're going to sing just in a moment, God, work through me, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our time to, to come together. And Lord, help us to see how you work in our lives. Help us to see your your daily hand. Give us eyes to see. Open our eyes, not just to behold wonderful things from your law, from your word, but to behold your gracious, kind, and good hand at work in all of our lives. Lord, we thank you that you have worked and that you will continue to work in and through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.